Please be seated. The sermon text for today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For the time is near. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from your word? Would you establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you? And will you cause us to rejoice over your word as those who find great spoil? And Father, would you do this work not only in those who have entered this room as Christians, And continue that work which your spirit began in them. But would you do it this morning in an opening and stunning display of your saving grace in Christ in the lives of those who enter this room as non-Christians. Show the authority and power and loving and saving intentions of your son by calling the many to him savingly today. I pray under this portion of your word by the spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as I I was uh, praying back over the passage, it just hit me with such force as I read uh, verse 4 again that uh, the Bible is uh, so serious, so deadly uh, serious. Uh, It is not to be trifled with. Uh, Believing it, can get you beheaded on the earth and crowned on a throne in heaven. That's what verse 4 says. 
beheaded on the earth because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and crowned on a throne in heaven. So with fear and trembling uh, and uh, an earnest desire for God's help in every way this morning, I'm I'm, uh, launching here into what is, uh, I think is not an exaggeration to say is the most uh, controversial passage in the book of Revelation. I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the the first six verses of our passage are uh, the most debated uh, verses in the book of Revelation. Whether they ought to be is uh, something I'll let you think about. I don't think they should be, but they are. And uh, since I know that, uh, that we as a congregation have come from many different paths, into the sanctuary, I feel uh, in light of that, I've got to make some preliminary comments before we launch in the text. And the first is, I do not expect to be able to answer all of your questions about this text. And that's not my intention, even. That's not by evasion. It's a function of emphasis. Because, and that's the second preliminary comment I want to share with you, I believe that there is room for earnest, scripture-loving and scripture-believing Christians to disagree about uh, many things in this passage, many of the questions presented by this passage, particularly the nature of the thousand years of the millennium, when and what it is. Now, my own studies have led me to very definite conclusions on this question, and I'm going to share those conclusions with you from Scripture, but I do so Uh, wanting to remind you again that I believe that there is room for earnest believers, faithful brothers and sisters to disagree. I don't expect everyone to agree with everything I'm going to share with you this morning. And just like every other week, whether you sit under uh, the ministry God has given to me or any other preacher of God's word, it is incumbent upon you as the people of God to test whatever you hear by your own study of the Scriptures. So if anyone ever says to me, I have a certain interpretation of the thousand years because Mike made a good argument, I'm going to slap you upside the head. Okay? I am not your Pope. And third, this is a sermon. It's not a theological lecture. And so both... The origin of the message and its goal is worship for me and for you. The truth of this passage has to be harnessed for worship. And I am unwilling to let anything uh, obstruct or interfere with uh, the majesty of Christ, which is just so prominently in this passage. I mean, the vision of the power and the triumph of Christ that is in this passage, regardless of how you interpret the thousand years, should just dwarf every other question that you have. And so that is, that's the mountain I want you to see. I don't want to argue over boulders. I want you to see the mountain. And there are three sections of this text that we're going to look at, and each one of them, I believe, is a separate call to worship that God, through the Holy Spirit, is issuing to us. A call to worship the Lord Jesus Christ for His triumph. A call being issued to each of us as Christians to worship the Lord Jesus Christ for His binding of Satan, for His final defeat of Satan, and for His rewards to His saints. Yes, call to worship that God is issuing to us as Christians. And, and so I pray 
that if you are a Christian, that what God will do this morning as we look at Revelation 20 is he'll deepen your confidence in Christ. And your vision of your Lord will expand. And you'll see his power with a new and fresh perspective that will change the way you spend this afternoon and the way you wake up tomorrow morning. And if you're a non-Christian, I believe that God has a call to worship to you today too from the same text as you see the Christ here by God's grace, the Christ of the Scripture standing forth uh, from his word and revealing himself to you. And I pray that God will lead you to humble your heart before him in repentance and faith. Okay, got the disclaimers out of the way. Let's, let's look at the first section. The first uh, call to worship is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ for his binding of Satan. That's verses uh, 1 through 3. Now, the first question I've got to deal with, and this is where some of you may, may be hearing some things from me that you're not used to hearing, is I've got to deal with the question of when. When is that thousand years? When is that binding of Satan? Now, now the widely held view is that this is happening after the second coming. That the Lord returns and then Satan is bound. That's a very widely held view. Some of you may hold that view. And the reason for that interpretation is, is very straightforward. It's very uncomplicated. The, the, reason, the main reason for that interpretation is chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. And what I mean by that is we saw in the second half of chapter 19 from verses 11 through 21, that's a second coming text. And we see the Lord coming in his triumph as a, a warrior and a king and a righteous judge. And then when he comes in his triumph, there's a, a decisive battle and he defeats all his foes at the end of chapter 19. The kings of the nations and their armies, the beast and the false prophet, there's no one left. And then chapter 20 begins. And the binding of Satan is discussed. And so many believers read that as a literal sequence. So the second coming happens, and then boom, Satan's bound. Well, that's not what I think the text is teaching. And I think there are some significant weaknesses uh, with that. There are too many reasons for me uh, to, to list for you. So I'm only going to give you two, but they're the two that I find personally the most persuasive. And I commend them to you for your own consideration, prayerful consideration. I don't believe that the passage is teaching us that Satan is bound, uh, is not bound until after our Lord's second coming. And the two reasons I want to set before you uh, in support of that are the following. Now, remember, the essential argument that, that the timing of this is, is that it happens after the second coming is the, is the chronological sequence between, or the chronological assumption that chapter 20 is showing us visions of things that will happen after chapter 19. In other words, the, the majority view says that the visions are given in the same order that the events are going to happen. But... Reason number one why I don't think that's persuasive is that's not how the rest of the visions in Revelation work. You can't read chapter 20 in a vacuum. You have to compare your interpretation to the rest of what you've seen in the book. And what we've seen in the book, just to take the most central and well-known visions in the book, the, the three cycles of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, what we've seen is those visions are given in a particular sequence, but they do not describe events 
that happen in a particular sequence. In other words, in each one of those seven, each one of those three sets of seven, we see an overlapping of events. In other words, the seventh seal, for example, the seventh seal describes the second coming. So does the seventh trumpet. So does the seventh bowl. So already we know from the rest of Revelation that the order visions are given doesn't necessarily uh, require us to follow a, a literal chronological reading of the events that they describe. So that's reason number one. It's just not the way the rest of the visions work in the book. And the second is, if you look at the end of chapter 19, now this is important. If you look at the end of chapter 19, um, no one is left. There's a decisive battle, and if you notice in verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. In other words, when you get to the end of chapter 19, there's been a decisive battle. The beast and the false prophet have both been defeated. And all of the human armies, those who have been marked by the the seal of the beast, all of them have been defeated and killed. So in other words, there are no survivors at the end of chapter 19. So how is it then that the binding of Satan uh, would, would happen after the second coming? There would be no one left for Satan to deceive. That's a very powerful point, I think, from the logic of the text. But you may not be persuaded yourself. I commend it to you for you to consider. So... If it's not happening after the second coming, when is it happening? I think that what the scripture is teaching us is that this binding of Satan is happening in the present age. It's describing what is true with respect to Satan between the first coming of our Lord and the second coming of our Lord, which is the age we live in. This is how Jesus understood his ministry. Think about Mark chapter 3. He's casting out demons and the Pharisees come up to him and say, well, you know, the way he's doing that is by demons. He's on Satan's side. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? A house divided against itself can't stand. The only way that you can plunder a strong man's house, he says, is by entering into the strong man's house. And you remember the word and bind the strong man and then you plunder his house. Jesus is saying that his ministry is about binding Satan, binding the strong man. And think about it. Every encounter that Jesus has with Satan or one of the demons in the Gospels, it's never a standoff. Jesus proceeds at will. And the demons kneel before him. There is never a close call. When Jesus comes, when he appears... He is beginning to bind Satan. And this continues all the way until the climax at the cross and his resurrection. This is Jesus' own understanding of his ministry. He was here to bind Satan. He was here to bind the strong man. To enter his house, which was the world full of sin. 
to enter that house, to exercise his power, exert his power over him, to restrain him, to heal him, to set people free from their sins and from darkness and to extend the kingdom of God. Do you remember when the 70 return in Luke 10 and the disciples are so excited because they've been able to cast out demons and heal people and they come back and they are rejoicing. The 70 are rejoicing before the Lord and he says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. That's because Jesus is conquering evil. That's what his ministry is about. And then in John chapter 12, the most uh, climactic a display of this. John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, looking forward to the cross, he says, now judgment is come upon this world and the ruler, and now the ruler of this world, that's Satan, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out, will be thrown out, and I if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see, Jesus' own understanding of his ministry was that from, from the beginning of that ministry all the way up to the climax of his death and resurrection, his ministry was about conquering Satan and binding Satan. That, I think, is, 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 is material that we need to take into account in understanding when this is. It's the present age. Now, what does it mean that Satan is bound? You notice I've avoided that question so far. Well, it doesn't mean that Satan is eradicated from the earth. I mean, we have texts, right? Like Ephesians 6, which tell us to to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, which tell us to put on the whole armor of God and to stand firm, a text which assumes post-resurrection that Satan is going to be active in the world, right? Active in some sense. We have a text like 1 Peter 5.8 where the Apostle Peter warns us that Satan is prowling like a lion ready to devour believers. So there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that even when Jesus has bound Satan in some sense, he is still active in the world. So how are we to make sense of these two things? Well, I think... The way to make sense of them is this, that Satan's power is under the authority of the risen and reigning Christ. He is not eradicated before the second coming, but he is drastically curtailed and limited. And in every respect, he is under the authority and power of Christ. He is not the equal of the risen Lord. Now, you'll notice in Revelation 20 that there's a particular purpose of the binding. In verse 3, he is bound so that he should not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, that text is not saying that he is bound completely and unable to influence anything. There's a particular purpose, which is the deceiving of the nations. And so think about it. Jesus dies and is resurrected, ascends to the Father's right hand after 40 days, pours the Spirit out And in Jerusalem, and what happens? The gospel now breaks forth out of the boundaries of Israel and goes to the nations. And the rest of history since our Lord's ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit has been about Jesus advancing in his kingdom. The gospel of God's kingdom is advancing in the nations. The story 
the main plot line viewed from God's perspective of human history since the resurrection of our Lord is the breaking out of God's kingdom into the midst of the nations. We might think it's about all kinds of other things, but the central drama of history is Jesus keeping his promise to build his church from all the nations that he purchased, as we saw in chapter 5, with his blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is the drama of history. That is what Scripture says is happening. And Satan is powerless to stop it. Powerless to stop the advance of the kingdom. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Period. You see what Jesus says? He says, I'm going to have my way with the world. I am on the offensive in history. Satan is bound. He is under my authority and on a chain. Jesus Christ and the Church of Christ are together on the offensive and not the defensive as we face history. Well, so what? What difference does that make to your life? So what if Satan is bound in the present age? So what if Jesus is supreme and, and controls, controls even the darkest forces in this world so that they ultimately serve the purpose of advancing his kingdom? So what? Well, I think the first, the first uh, application of this binding of Satan for us is that Satan's binding is a measure for us of the limitless power and authority of our Lord. Friends, we need to remember that history is the canvas of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, when he surveys the future, he is not afraid. He has no uncertainty. He has risen to the Father's right hand. He reigns from there. All things have been put under his feet. He is far above, Ephesians 1 says, far above all rule and power and authority and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The Father has put everything in subjection under His feet. That is our Lord. Friends, that is your Redeemer. That is your King. That is the one who stands astride human history and says, I will build my church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. When Jesus Christ surveys the future. He is utterly unafraid and has no uncertainty. And if he isn't, we shouldn't be either. Friends, the gospel is going to advance. And it is advancing. The gospel is advancing. The church will be built. And we should invest our lives. We should invest our our efforts. We should invest our prayers, our money, our hopes on the assumption based on the binding of Satan by the power of Christ that the gospel will continue to advance. Friends, do not watch the news and get pessimistic. For a Christian to get gloomy about Islam or about health care or about recessions is a sin. It is a sin. Our fundamental orientation toward the future is expectation because Jesus is in charge of history. History is our Lord's canvas. And He is painting what He will. 
And so you connect that with something like Christianity Explored or that wonderful, that wonderful set of encouragements from Darren and the testimony from our sister Jan. As you process those, I want you to place alongside those wise suggestions the, the truth that Jesus controls history. Which means he controls and is sovereign and has the last word and final say in every relationship that you have. The binding of Satan. Worship our Lord for his power. But not only for his binding of Satan during the present age, but also for his final defeat of Satan. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 10. This is the second reason I think our text gives us to worship uh, our triumphant Lord Jesus. The binding of Satan during this present age, during this, this millennium, is a preview of his final eternal defeat of Satan at the end of the age following Christ's return. That binding is like a preview of what will ultimately happen to Satan. And notice, notice the certainty of this defeat in verses 7 through 10. It's not close. It happens so swiftly, right? The, Satan is released. Notice he's released. He doesn't escape. He's in a prison and he is released by the sovereign power of Christ. He doesn't figure a way out. He is under the authority of Christ. He is released in Christ's timing and according to Christ's power. It is Christ who holds the keys of death and of Hades. Remember chapter 1? It is He who holds the key to the abyss. And so when He opens, or when He shuts, no one can open. And when He opens, no one can shut. So when He opens the abyss and Satan comes out, that is a display of Christ's power. He controls the final Battle, and it happened so swiftly. You notice the armies, the armies Gog and Magog, which is from Ezekiel, and it symbolizes all the the nations in their opposition to the rule of God, very much like Psalm two. All the nations gathered together under the deceit of Satan and the false prophet and the beast. They're all together, and you notice they just barely line up, and the battle is over as soon as it starts. And that is a reflection of the power of Christ over evil. And it is a final victory. Do you notice at the end that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where he joins the beast and the false prophet and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, after all the wreckage of sin, after all the wreckage of temptation, after all the destructive forces of death and ruination that Satan and his minions and his demonic Troops have exerted in history at the climax. It doesn't take hardly any effort for Christ to destroy him. Now, some of you come out of backgrounds where you have been taught to give Satan way too much power. A demon did that. A demon did that. A demon did that. Satan's doing this. Friends, it's not a scriptural vision. You need to have a view of the sovereignty of Christ. And what I want you to see in the swiftness of this victory and in the triumph of Christ, again, is that history belongs to Jesus Christ alone. In the end, it is Christ who triumphs. In the end, Islam will be a distant memory. 
Mohammed will not triumph. Atheism will not triumph. Hinduism will not triumph. Buddhism will not triumph. Mormonism will not triumph. Paganism will not triumph. Materialism won't triumph. No, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone will be vindicated at the end of history because it belongs to Him. Only He has power like this. Only He has the power to conquer sin. Only He will have possessed the power to eradicate it from the world. Only He will have been shown to be a champion like that who would use His power to rescue and redeem the world from taking, from ta- by taking in His own body the wrath of God against sin. No, in that day, Jesus Christ will stand alone without equal or peer. And as we as Christians in the midst of our lives, we look at this. What we are being shown by God is the triumph of Christ. The power of Jesus Christ. And God wants our estimates of our Lord's glory to expand and blow up. Have a big bang expansion. Because when we look at the world and we look away from the Bible, so often... It looks like history belongs to the bad guys. To darkness. Christians, I say again, our fundamental orientation toward the future is one that is defined by hope, not despair. Because history belongs to Jesus Christ. My father uh, will uh, often say to me in these days as we talk about the news that and, and he's repeated this over and over again. And we talk about this. He says, I am so glad that I do not have to live when you live. Because he looks at the world. And a lot of things have gone wrong. And you see, I share with my dad. There is, there is glory for me as a Christian. I believe that God's kingdom is going to come. There will be justice. Justice is not going to fade away. Justice is going to be established. Righteousness is not going to become meager. It is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. My God will come and reign. Christians, we get so bound up by what happens in Washington. I don't want my taxes to be raised any more than the next guy. But so what if they are? That's not going to capsize my hope. And it shouldn't capsize yours either. What happens in Washington or doesn't happen in Washington is minuscule in comparison to the weight of what God has done, is doing, and will do in Christ for His people. Friends, your definition of hope has to be, has to be transferable to Mauritania. has to be transferable To the Maldives, it has to be transferable to Bangladesh. If your vision of what the kingdom of God means only makes sense and is coherent in an American context, then it is unbiblical. And so there may be a readjustment. There may be a call to repentance that God is issuing to you as a Christian here. Keep your eyes on the big picture. Ask God to show you how your heart needs to be brought into alignment, needs to be calibrated to this glory of Christ, maybe. And if you're non-Christian, oh, this, I realize you may be looking at this just going, why did I come to church today? I cannot even believe I accepted the invitation. You know what God is doing for you 
He's telescoping the end of history for your benefit through this text. He's showing you the end. He's showing you how things wind up. And he's brought you here and he's brought you near by this text for this purpose. To awaken in you, my friend, the recognition that you are on the wrong side of the divide that God has made in history by the death and resurrection of his son. And, and God wants you to, to awaken to that recognition because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he wants you to come to his son. He wants you to be reconciled to him. He wants you, my non-Christian friend, to no longer be my non-Christian friend, but to be my brother or my sister. He wants you to find in his son the Redeemer who alone can satisfy your soul. And you, you must hear that if you finish your life with your sins but without Christ, you must hear. And I warn you, not, not as some kind of power play, but in genuine earnestness and love, I warn you that you will join the devil and the false prophet and the beast in unending torment for your sins in the lake of fire. And that will be an exercise of God's justice because above all things, you have rejected his son. So you are on notice this morning of the end of history. Receive Christ. If you finish life with your sins but without Christ, that's your fate. But if you finish your life with your sins but with Christ well then you will enjoy membership in God's kingdom forever and you will know what the first resurrection is. So the first, so what, under the final triumph of Christ over Satan is that history belongs to Christ and we need to change our orientation toward the future. But the second is this, as we watch Christ uh, win an easy victory over Satan and his minions, we just see it's effortless. We see that darkness and sin in the end are completely weak. They fall before the might of Christ. It's not like World War II where the good guys win, but they lose a lot on the way to winning. That is not how history is going to unfold. When Christ returns, He will win an easy and overwhelming victory because darkness is weak. In the end, darkness and sin are weak. And that is what Christ's final victory shows us. In the end, they cannot withstand or, or obstruct or delay or interfere with the progress of God's kingdom. It is God and His triumphant Son who alone determine how history will turn out at the macro level and at the micro level. And what I want you to hear this morning is that if it, will be, if it won't be close then, it's not close now. There is no darkness in which you find yourself that will not yield to Jesus Christ and His light. There is no addiction that will not yield now to the power of Jesus Christ. It is weak, that darkness, in comparison to the might of Christ. There is no despair that will not yield to the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. There is no lostness. There is no distance from God that Jesus Christ, in all of His power and in all of His willingness and in His love, that He cannot bridge. I don't care what your experience is. 
Christ is more than sufficient. And whatever darkness it is that holds you, no matter how vicious it is, it is weak in compared to the, when compared to the power of Christ. Oh, the Son of Man is very great, but will He find faith on the earth? Oh, friends, there is no sin, no failing, no guilt over which Jesus Christ does not stand today at this moment with complete power and authority and willingness to heal and restore. So will you call upon him? The third reason to worship our Lord Jesus Christ this morning for his triumph is what we see of his reward to his people. We worship him for the way that he protects his saints, those who die in faithfulness to him. This is what verses 4 and 6 are about. This is such a beautiful passage. This is one of those passages. You know, when I first started uh, praying through preaching uh, in Revelation, from Revelation about two years ago, there were certain key passages that had over the years, by God's grace, been very significant for me from the book of Revelation that God had used uh, very mightily in my life. And, and, and I will tell you that my experience of preaching from this book, in addition to exhausting me, has, has been to discover, be surprised by so many other passages that I had not noticed how rich they were in grace and beauty. And verses 4 through 6 are in that category for me now. There is such a loveliness in this vision, and I'm just very eager for God to, to encourage you through it and to help you through it, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Now, now, let me make sure we understand how this, I've done this out of order for a reason, and I want you to, I want you to understand how verses 4 through 6 relate to 1 through 3. 1 through 3... And verses 4 through 6 both describe the same time period, this thousand years, however you interpret that. But they do it from different perspectives. In verses 1 through 3, what we're seeing, the camera angle is on the the fate and condition of Satan during that period. But in verses 4 through 6, the camera is on the saints during that same period. And, um, and And just as just as just as with point number one, which was the binding of Satan, and with point number two, which was the final defeat of Satan. So this last point about the rewards that Christ has reserved for his people, all of these in one way or another are ways of showing us the, the amazing effects of Christ's death and resurrection. Because ultimately, Christ's binding of Satan happens climactically at his cross and with his resurrection as he triumphs over sin and death. And that it is the cross and his resurrection that also seal his final defeat of Satan. But it is also at the cross and the resurrection that he earns and secures these rewards that we are going to see here in these verses for his people. So, in, 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 and I'm not, this is not an exaggeration to say that everything that we have talked about this morning and thought about together is an extended meditation on the meaning and significance of Christ's achievement at the cross and through his resurrection. Everything is always about the gospel. Period. And so in this vision, what's happening is God is opening heaven wide again in this book to show us these great effects of Christ's work for us. And it is such a glorious vision. Now we're in heaven. A lot of people think this is a vision on on earth, but that, that doesn't make sense to me. Let me tell you why. Number one, John sees souls. Number two, John sees thrones. And number three, John sees judgment being given. And it's a judgment scene. 
And within Revelation, those three things, that's always the vocabulary of heaven. So we're in heaven. And notice uh, description. What you're seeing is John sees thrones and he sees people sitting upon them and judgment was given to them or for them. Vindication is being given to them. And then the souls that John sees are described and they're described first as those who've been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. Now, those are martyrs. But that's not all John sees. Notice there's an and there. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What John is seeing is a vision of all Christians, not just those who are martyred. All Christians who die in faithfulness to the Lord. This is relevant to all of us. If you have a loved one who died in the Lord, this is a vision of what they are enjoying. As you think about your own death, you should not be afraid of your death, Christian. Period. Because look what's going to happen. You will enter into the presence of the Lord and you will have life. You will come to life and you will reign with Christ. The world may regard you as a very small and insignificant person. But if you are in Christ, you will share his throne. And you will sit with him as he judges history. There is no such thing as a small person. This first resurrection, some of this terminology I realize can be a little confusing. We know for sure the second death. We know that from verse 14 in chapter 20. The second death is eternal punishment. That's spiritual death. This first resurrection has been a debated term, but I'll tell you what I think this is, the simplest way to understand this. This is not a literal physical resurrection. This is a spiritual resurrection. It belongs only to those who die in Christ. And when we die, we enter the presence of the Lord. We come to life. But friends, it also begins earlier. It begins at our conversion in our regeneration. When we are born again, think about what Paul says. But God, Ephesians 2, but God, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's a resurrection verse. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and seated us at his right hand in the heavenly Places. Friends, that's a conversion verse which describes conversion as resurrection. This first resurrection begins, friends, by the power of Christ at your conversion when you are born again and regenerated by the Spirit of Christ. And it continues after your death, believer. Remember our Lord Jesus in John eleven twenty five said, He who believes, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember that? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Oh yes, Scripture gives us a very big vision of this first resurrection that belongs only to those who are saints. And I want you to think about how beautiful this picture is. You know, we walk by now, we walk now by faith, not by sight. 
And we have God's promises, which are precious and magnificent. And they set before us an inheritance of such loveliness and such beauty. But so often, friends, it is hard to believe them. So often we struggle because we look at our lives and we say, there's such a gap between my experience and what your word promises. And that can be such a discouraging gap. And it was no less discouraging for our first century brothers and sisters who were getting hammered by the Roman Empire. Just getting hammered. I mean, they had all the stuff that we have. Okay? They had economic problems. They had family issues. They had health issues. They had employment issues. They have everything that we have. And on top of that, they got their clocks clean just for going to church. And one of the ways the Spirit applies the gospel to our brothers and sisters in the first century is to say, let let me open wide the doors of heaven to show you, to show you why perseverance is worth it. Why you should not give up. Why you should cling tenaciously to the promises of God. Because you will not only have life, but you will reign. And what you knew positionally, by faith, you will now know when you enter the presence of the Lord experientially. You'll be in His presence. You will not only have the throne by faith, but you will have it by sight. And you will know even more clearly than you do now how valuable it is that God would speak over your life the second death has no power over you. No power. Eternal judgment has no power over you, believer. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. For over these, the second death has no power. Friends, that's true today. You should celebrate it. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. If you are born again, joined to Christ, if you are a saint walking in the Lord, friends, the second death has no power over you. You already have experienced the beginning of that first resurrection. And as you look at verses 4 through 6, what God is showing you is where your inheritance will lead. Yes, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, these He also called. And those whom He called, these He also justified. And those whom He justified, these He also glorified. There's no gaps there. You will get there, Christian. He will get you there. How do you apply this vision beyond what I've already said? Well, I think in this way, and it is to understand that verse 6 in the beatitude that is here, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. What that is, when God begins a sentence with the word blessed, And then it's followed by the word is. We're meant to understand that kind of sentence as a definitional sentence. In other words, this is God's definition of what a blessed life really is. And I want you to think about how much in conflict this definition of a life that matters is with the definition and formulas that our world gives us. There's no compatibility whatsoever. So as you... 
Either you're old and you look back on your life and you have regrets, or you're young and you have ambitions and you're thinking forward to what you want your future to be. We, and I'm on the old side of that, we all together need to see that what God is laying before us is His voice, His definition of a life that really matters, a life of true significance. So we need to repent of our regrets if these things are true of us. And we need to repent of our godless arrogance if this is not part of us as we look toward the future. This is the definition that God gives us of a life that is blessed. If a life is joined to Christ, sharing in Christ's inheritance, that is a blessed life. That is a life that matters. So friends, what are you living for? Are you living for this reward? Is this the standard against which you are measuring your own life according to which you are organizing and shaping your efforts and pursuits? Is being found in Christ and having a part in the first resurrection, reigning with Him, having a place on His throne, serving as a priest of God and of Christ, is that your operational definition of prosperity? regardless of the rewards you receive or fail to receive in this world. Friends, what verse 6 is calling us to do is to recalibrate our lives. What verse 6 has done in my life, let me share with you two ways in which it has impacted me this week. It has stirred a desire, a prayer to God that He would execute, execute envy in my life. And jealousy of other people's lives and coveting. One of the nice things that's happened over the last month, and I, I just confess it publicly, is that through a bunch of things, I'm, I'm now on Facebook. Okay? And uh, I repent of all my prior criticism of Facebook and my mockery of it. I, 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 I yield to every criticism. And one of the things that has happened, it's just been so wonderful, is that I've been able to reconnect with some old friends. And uh, one of them actually will be here in two weeks. Uh, one of my best friends from high school. He'll be with us in worship. But one of the dark sides of being on Facebook is you peer into other people's lives. And I confess it. I am an envious, covetous person. And so I've seen things, whether it's money or life situation, or where they go on vacation, or those kind of things that I have coveted and envied. And in the process of that, I have thought poorly of my own life. And as I've read verse 6 and heard the voice of God speaking to me, I have been led to repent of that. Because God doesn't say, blessed is the one who has a humongous 401k. And blessed is the one who works in Silicon Valley or used to work in Silicon Valley. Blessed is the one who vacations on Maui. That's not what God says. What God says is blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. This is what life should be about. And the second thing that verse 6 has done in me is not only to execute envy, to kill envy and jealousy and coveting, that desire for God to, to do that through the gospel, but also to awaken positively, to bring to life gratitude and joy. 
supremely over Christ, that every fiber in my being would resonate with God's own word, and I would say, blessed am I because I am in Christ. That's what I pray God would do in your life, believer, just as he has done in mine. Let verse 6 be how you evaluate your life. Let God's definition of what a life worth living is be your definition. And to the extent that there's a gap, repent and ask for God's help. He is eager to give it in Christ. And let me end with, with our non-Christian friends. Um, because if, if verse 6 is also a definition, uh, if verse 6 is a definition of, is God's definition of a life that is blessed, it is also by implication God's definition of a life that is cursed. And you need to feel that. You need to feel that unless you are in Christ, you need to hear the terrifying echo and the overtones of the curse of God that is in verse 6. Because here's the overtone of it. Here's the echo of it. Cursed and unholy is the one who has a part in the second death but not in the first resurrection. The wrath of God will abide on him forever and he will be tormented day and night justly for his sins. And you say, why in the world did I come to church? Well, I don't know why you came, but I know why God brought you and he brought you because he wanted you to have someone tell you the truth about the universe that God has made and about your place in it, and about the greatness of the redemption that God has initiated in Christ for you. This message is God's kindness to you this morning. He wants you to know that it is the second death, eternal separation from Him, and being under the just judgment of His wrath for your sins, that that second death is the one which ought to be your greatest fear, not the first. And he has brought you here this morning to hear of the greatness of his son, who is the redeemer that God himself sent into the world from his love for sinners and his desire and willingness and readiness to to reconcile the lost world to him. He's he's brought you here to hear the greatness of his son, to make you aware of your need for him, to call you to him and to assure you this morning on the authority of his word, of his readiness to bestow each and every one of these blessings upon you if you will bend your knee and yield to Christ. Now, I pray that you will not waste that grace of God. And if God has moved in your life as a non-Christian this morning and has gotten your attention, then please, I beg of you, grab somebody next to you and ask them to help you understand more of what it means to become a Christian, how you do that. You must call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved that way. You must cast all yourself. You must turn from your sins in repentance. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. You must give as much as you understand of yourself to as much as you understand at this point of who God is for you in Christ. And God will bless a needle of faith in the midst of a haystack of error.
because he is so kind. But you must come. And I pray that you will. Let's pray. Lord, today, you've been kind to us to speak to us and to show us your son. I pray for us as believers that increasingly in the power of your spirit we would live lives as followers of Christ that reflect his triumph and his magnitude, his greatness. And I pray for our non-Christian friends whom you've graciously brought here this morning that today would be the day they remember into eternity as the day when your mercy broke in and conquered every darkness and all estrangement and all guilt. And they saw that it was the power of Christ and his work alone that accomplished that work today. I pray in Jesus' name.